This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from a very wet Fakutani by Mawera Karatai. Come on, Mawera. Although you say the sun's out. Yes, Sam, the sun is out, the birds are singing, and we know that it won't last because this has been the wettest summer that, like, there, there's this graph from the Bavlini Regional Council um, where they've tried to put our rain level for this year compared to every other year and it's just made this ridiculous shaped graph um, because we've just had so much rain but um but in saying that we really did you know with the cyclone uh has just been through and we had this really random little bubble sometimes happens with the eastern bay of plenty we've got uh, we're surrounded by three different lots of ranges uh, and sometimes they'll block weather. Um, but the other side of that is like when we had Cyclone Cook, um, it will also hold the weather. So, yeah, yeah. this I time think it you're, worked you're, for us and, and we were okay. You're certainly in the lead for this one, but friends of yours, Toby, was going to be in the brunt of it. They weren't, they're not contactable yet. We we hope they're all right. Yeah, um, I heard uh, that. Um, that Toby managed to get a, a call out to his wife on a satellite phone to say they were okay. But many of the people that we've interviewed on our show over the last few years um, have been hugely affected. Um, some of the photos that I'm seeing um, really uh, broke my heart to see the devastation on a lot of the marae, the marae that, you know, that really care for those communities uh, destroyed, you know, Wharanui destroyed by um, terrible flood water and, it's it's just pretty sad, but climate change, we can't expect anything other than this to happen. It would be naive to think that this is a one-off event. You know, how many once in a hundred events can we have in a year before we say, okay, climate change? Exactly. And the danger is that people leap straight from denying to adapting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and And not stopping on the... Maybe we can do something about this on the way through. That would be nice, though, if we actually yeah. got that kind of mindset. But that's, you know, that that's the work that we're all doing with, with a team that's doing that. So, yeah, making Indeed. sure that people are thinking that way. And that fits nicely with who we're talking with today. Who are we talking oh, with today? Yes. Today it is my great pleasure to introduce lecturer and doctorate student Tim Lynch. Tim has spoken to us in the past and it was a very cool conversation. So we're stoked to have you back again, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Nice to see you today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, it's nice to see you. And in the background, I can see you have a dry house, which is something quite positive. Uh, it is. It's, it's really interesting hearing you talk about 
the weather systems that are going on up there and comparing it to how things are looking in Dunedin, and particularly where I live out in the peninsula, which is dry. It's dry like central Otago. Um, we, our, our house, we're on rainwater, so we're, uh, we particularly notice when it, when it gets dry, I've been ferrying water to my house for about the past two months, I would say wow. quite continually. So that gives you an idea of just how dry things are out on the peninsula. Um, you couple that with the marine heat wave, which is going through at the moment, out the front of our place, the, Ota the Otago Harbour was over 20 degrees Celsius. Um, what? 22. So they got to 22. Got to 22, uh, and it's mm. astonishing. And, and it's this whole this notion of, of, of climate change and what it means and what it looks like is starting to change. The conversations are starting to change. You know, I was chatting to like commercial fishermen and these are big burly fishermen and they're just talking about how the cod are going to deeper water because it's too hot. Uh, the, the levels of uh, mortality rates in salmon are becoming, making it unsustainable. So we're starting to see the sort of economic impacts of it outside of the, outside of the ecological impacts of it. Um, and I think that's particularly one of the areas that we try to teach on the degree is the, the symbiotic relationship between ecological and economic activities and how the two of them work hand in hand. Um, and I think it's now becoming sort of front and centre and it's, you know, it's not so much of a denial because you simply cannot deny the frequency of events which are occurring. But that stuff aside, I've um, been quite fortunate because I've been sort of in my happy space before the students turn up in the kitchen, I've been um, making rum. Um, in fact, I have about <laughs> 200 litres of, of rum that I've been distilling. And, and the, the process of making rum, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting because anything that you get from around the equatorial belt, um, they have like these processes to mitigate heat and the effects of heat in the tropics. And one of the ways they learned to do that was actually just by accepting the funk and that things would get rotten. So whenever you make rum, you have a byproduct of fermentation left behind and it's called dundon. And so what they discovered that you could do is you'd, you'd have this thing called a dunder pit, which was literally a, a long drop that you would tip the stuff into. And you'd chuck goat's heads in there and bits of chicken carcasses and, and whatever else was in there. And what that would do is it, it would ferment and it would get funky and it would change the pH of, of the rum. And then you would incorporate that into the next batch of molasses that you were fermenting to distill. Uh, and what they what they did is it did two things. One of the things is it shifted the pH, so it prevented things going off. It added flavour to it, and it reduced the amount of water that they were having to use. Now, a couple of about three years ago, my stepfather got uh, diagnosed with cancer, um, and we got told by the doctor, "Brace, brace, brace. We're going to be cogs up pretty soon on this." And I was trying to figure out w what I could do to kind of continue my stepfather's legacy in a way that I would understand it, which was, was, was with food. Um, my stepfather was a wildlife photographer and for his life uh, and a rum aficionado. He's drunk more rum than he knows what to do with. <clears throat> so I took a swab of the yeasts that were on his hands and I, I developed that yeast and I fermented them and I made a rum strain using the yeast from his hands. The idea being that when he passed on, each time I get this dunder and I re-add it to it, it's a piece of my stepfather's fermentation, which is going in with each one of these, these rum distilleries. So I'm up to generation four at the moment. Interestingly enough, what happened is my stepfather seems to be one of the only people in humankind that seems to have cured cancer by drinking rum and eating processed meat. 
somehow has managed to survive. So now the rum, rather than being something I produce in his memory, is more like medicine that I have to give him several litres of every, every once in a while when I'm distilling it. So that's what I've been doing in the past past couple of weeks, is um, distilling rum, which has been made with the yeast extracted from my stepfather's hands. That's incredible. What a cool story. Yeah, well, it's 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 a it's a fun thing to do, and it's, I think it kind of shows. I think when you take the notion of food, I mean, food is what I do, it's what I teach, it's what I talk about, and when and and when you stretch it a little bit further, and you, you say, okay, what is what is the, what is the relationship between science and food work, and how does that how does that orientate? How can we do it in, in a way which is useful for us? And I, I like to say that you know, science without people is redundant. You know, you, you need to have the science, but you need to have the people in there that it's affecting. And so, for me, the the the, the idea of combining this scientific approach of using wild yeasts uh, and isolating them, then adding humanity to it, I think is sort of, in a lot of ways, my approach to to food and, and the way that I like to view things, um, particularly surrounding food. I mean, the greatest meals I've ever had, uh, none of them have been in a you know fancy restaurant, none of them have been in a Michelin restaurant. They've been sitting on a beach eating fish that's been caught out of the water in front of me on an open fire. Uh, and they are the they are the meals. They are the ones that you remember. They're the ones you have with your family. Uh, it's the connectivity that occurs between food and place and environment. That's the things that, that make food memorable and what it's about. Um, for me, with the with the rum, I just want to take that notion because I knew I wouldn't be able to share that time with my with my stepfather anymore. How would I be able to maintain that relationship? How would I be able to maintain that emotional connection through my medium, which is food? And so that was the solution that I came up with on it. He's so lucky. Oh, he just he likes rum, so he's pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should all start taking cultures of the yeast of our hands. Maybe it's well, a miracle cure. Yeah, well, I'll be I'll be honest with you. There there has been uh, a, a a feminist activist, and I know that that's like a really that's a really loaded statement to put out there. She has done a similar thing. She made a, a sourdough bread and the culture she used was from a vaginal swab. Uh, and that was that she was making a political statement by it. So, you know, there are examples of this, you know. And my, my friend who's a pharmacist, he likes to explain that if, 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 the, if the big green aliens came down and they landed on, on Earth and they came around and saw us, the stuff that they wouldn't be so impressed with would be like nuclear fission. They wouldn't care about that. They wouldn't care about our warships. They wouldn't care about any of those things. What they would be fascinated and amazed by is that as human beings, we can symbiotically be surrounded by about 35,000 microbes or bugs that at any one stage, any one of them could kill us, and we somehow manage to survive and, in fact, have a relationship with them. And all the cultures, it doesn't matter if you look at... Um, like the Japanese with the koji, uh, the, any culture, and there is a relationship with these microbes which they've nurtured. I need to squeeze in a music piece. Let's have the first of your choices. Let's have Camp Cope, Keep Growing. Why this one? Uh, well, this actually comes from the um, uh, doctorate studies, which I'm doing at the moment. Um, so it's surrounding voice, um, and there's a... And it's, it's surrounding the voice that I want to take in the narrative and how I want to speak and the people that I want to resonate to with what I'm trying to communicate. And what I find interesting about Camp Cope and um, the next song that you put on is that they're both 
the same thing. The great, great music, the stuff that you carry with you through your, through your life is, is an explanation of self. It's an explanation of the human condition. It's an explanation of who they are as an artist and how you resonate with that. And, and if you listen to Kent Cope, there's almost like this sort of, uh, there's like a, a sort of a whimsical baseline that goes to it. And, and it's quite, it's almost childish. And the lyrics that she talks about over the top are things that we can all relate to. But it's through her lens and it's that ability for her to communicate exactly her life, uh, her experiences, that moment in time. And with all of those, within all of those lyrics, there is something that all of us can relate to. There's something that we can all hear in there that we all understand. The other part that I, I really enjoy about that is, is this, this sort of notion that you hear a lot of, oh, the music now, but the music now is no good. And I'm a product of the '90s, um, and I can talk Fugazi and Black Flag until the cows come home. But what's really, really interesting about th these two selections is that this is the voice of a generation, of the new generation. And when you listen to it, you can hear all of the all of the kind of slacker kind of attitudes that that generation is getting sort of slammed with. And you're able to understand and hear it, but at the same time, she's still singing about things that are relevant to all of us at any one stage of our life. So yeah, that's why yeah, the camp camp cope. These girls are amazing. They they just write some incredible songs. Uh, if you get a chance, look them up. Um, what they do is very very cool. What they stand for is fantastic.
is very cool. I have resisted the temptation to play out to their hurricane song. Yeah. But the but the the it's interesting hearing on the radio this morning that the Wairoa, which is currently cut off and where we have learners, and let's hope that they're all okay. The the headline news was that they've they cut off and they've only got one day's food supply. That seems like a pretty weird way of running a society that you only have one day's food. I, I presume they mean one day's food like bread and milk in the in the supermarket, because surely they haven't gone and looked in everybody's ga- in everybody's cupboards. But it's an well, interesting sort of vulnerability that we have. It's an astonishing. I mean, that, I mean, that is food security at its its plainest. My one of my colleagues was the uh, the the executive chef of the Christchurch Hospital, and and they had to maintain a minimum of two weeks food stock at any one time. So if they had emergencies, they could literally shut everything down, and they would be fine for two weeks. But uh, it does show the notion of of food security and what that looks like, and and you can see. You know, on the geopolitical side of things, China has made no bones about the fact that they want food security for their people. And that's starting to play out in a lot of their foreign policy and the way they purchase, particularly New Zealand um, food producers. Uh, And it's probably something as a country we're a little bit naive about, if I was to be honest. Um, The resource that we have, the resources that we have, how it's allocated, how it's used. I would hope, um, I think this next political cycle is going to be quite something we've never seen in New Zealand before. I think we're going to see a lot of voices coming forward on it that perhaps we have been marginalised and we haven't heard before. But my hope is within that noise is that we're able to have conversations around things like food security, the fact that people go hungry. I mean, you could almost point to the fact that if there's only one day's food there, that that is probably pointing to possibly the affluence of that community. I'm sure if you went into other communities, um, they would certainly have more than one day's food available to them. Um, And it's those conversations that I think surrounding food, for me, really kind of come to the heart of what we are as a country, what we believe about, uh, who, who we are. Uh, how how we maintain those. Um, there's a lot of noise surrounding particularly recreational harvesting of, of food. Uh, for myself, I'm a fisherman. I, I enjoy, I enjoy um, catching fish. It's something which is quite special. But there's a lot of noise around how that should be regulated. Uh, and those conversations, um, whether we want to acknowledge it or not or like it or not, are in the biocultural space. They are, they, are, they are not one culture being dominant, it's one listening carefully to the other and finding an area which is universal. Um, the, the concern and worry about that is, I, I would assume, change. Um, if we would be honest, as a recreational fisherman, if I look at the impact, SMA1, which is the um, snapper catchment area at the top of the North Island, um, the recreational catch had increased by 250%. The commercial catch had actually decreased. So the role that we play as recreational fishermen, as harvesters, is something that we need to take responsibility for and take ownership for. Um, and I hope, my hope is, as, as part of this conversation, which is starting to occur around co-governance, is it is going to include things like that. It's going to include this bicultural space where we create an identity for ourselves and a value set for ourselves as a country, which is a, is, is a blend of everyone's. I mean, my whakapapa is very much on the European side, but uh, where I live down the Otago Peninsula is very close to the Marae there. So it's those those values percolate through to the community where I live. It, it is, And if I was to ignore those, 
well, that would just be a route, but it means that I would be turning my back on a richness to the area that I live. Uh, and I, and my hope is surrounding these conversations is that we actually get to the heart of this in this governmental, this parliamentary cycle. Um, and we get away from the, the distraction, which is actually just the noise. And it is just that it's a distraction from a real conversation that we need to have as a country. And as you say, one day's food, well, that's, that's, in, that's indicative of these conversations that we should be having. In your master's, you developed, I think it was two businesses taking different approaches to developing food. And I think it was around use of the, was it around use of the whole fish or around the whole food product? What do you, in the work you're doing now and where you're going, what do you see as the, the levers for change? What do we need to happen at a large scale and how do we make it? How do we get it from, yeah, that needs to change to, Actually, this is what we now do. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's that's the $50 million question, isn't it? Um, I, I think the thing is that, at some levels, my feeling is that there has to be a recognition that there is not one universal fits all for change. Um, change change will be individual within individual communities. That is sort of my feeling. It will be bespoke. Um, one of the things that we have we're fearful of change is of a loss of control. So I'll give you an example. So um, electric cars. So currently oil is over $100 US barrel. Now, if every three cars on the road, so you imagine 10 cars on the road, three of them are off, so they're being replaced by somebody on a bus or somebody on a on a push bike, that will take oil from $100, over $100 US barrel down to around $30 US barrel. So the economics start to shift into play there. So that... That change on that that part is actually just hopping on a bus. A lot of the in the food world, we're starting to see a lot of stuff surrounding alternative proteins, which are starting to come forward. Um, the threats for New Zealand are we are like we're a major export of dairy. What our our economy, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, is is based around the fact that we have rightly or wrongly access to free water. Our economy is based around that. We feed that water through cows, turn it into milk, dehydrate it, remove the water, and then ship the powder off overseas. Well, unfortunately for us, there's only a finite amount of that that we can produce. And the product, and the byproduct, and the purpose of doing it, we have a whole lot of methane that's 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 being emitted from it, which is a greenhouse gas emitter. Whether we like it or not, we have to admit that the, the actual the implications of that we need to start acknowledging. That's on an ecological level. On a on a more sort of economic level, we also have to acknowledge that Danone and Nestlé, who we Fonterra supplies to, have now signed up with the largest uh, whey-based, vegan whey-based producers in the world. They have unlimited capacity for production. So on an economic level, we have to acknowledge that we'll, there needs to simply be change within this. Um, if you start looking at the way carbon is carbon credits are operating, you could easily argue that on an agricultural landscape, this is the third great wave of change since these guys turned up here on a boat with big funny hats talking a funny language. This is possibly the greatest opportunity New Zealand has had. This is the opportunity where we can get big swathes of native New Zealand forest and simply leave it alone, not touch it. And it has a value within it, and we now start understanding that value. So these notions of change and what needs to be done, I think it's an individual ownership or a conversation or a communication of that within family, within 
community of what you're going to do for change, uh, how you're going to be part of this. Um, you know, this resilience to change is somewhat redundant because it's simply going to be forced upon us. I mean, this is what we all just discussed earlier on, this change. I mean, I'm having facing, looking at the, the change down the Otago Peninsula, you're looking at change in the North Island. If we were to walk away from it and say that's not happening, well, we're not going to be actually able to address it in the way that we can. So for me, the, the, the big thing that needs to start changing is an acceptance that individually our behaviour will have to change and that collectively will have an impact. Uh, and those changes are small. As I said, those changes are literally maybe take the bus to work once a week. The, the collective impact of that is, is massive, but the individual impact of it is actually quite small. Um, surrounding, I mean, another statistic for you is that if, in, if you imagine Switzerland, the size of Switzerland, so if, if, if each household in, in Switzerland had three carbon-reduced meals a week, and so when I say carbon-reduced meals, I'm basically saying not red meat. That's pretty much what it means. So, you know, let's even take it a step further. Of those three, let's make one vegetarian. Hey, let's throw the, push the boat out with it. That's, that has the same amount, of, that has the same effect as taking 750,000 cars off the road in Switzerland. So for where I stand in food, the small incremental change is actually in a change of diet, one which is ultimately more healthy uh, and being more observant about how you engage with food. So the third largest producer of greenhouse gases in the world is food waste. You know, if you if it was a country, you'd have China, the United States, and then food waste. That's how big it would be. You know, the, the food waste in the United States alone is the equivalent to 42 coal-fired power stations running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So that, if you look at that, that seems overwhelming, but the way to get around that is simply to make sure you eat all the food in your fruit. And if there is something left over to compost it. So the individual and the small movement individually adds up to a very large collective change. So that will be sort of, that's my thinking and that's where I feel about it, that, that um, these these things, changes we're facing can be overwhelming and they, they, they can be daunting, but in, in real terms, it's actually small and incremental and individual and it's at an individual community level. And while we look for governmental guidance on this and they need to set in place things such as United, United the Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations um, and the governmental bicultural, bilateral agreement that we'll have a carbon neutral economy by 2050, we can't outsource the responsibility for it, I suppose, is what I'm, I'm trying to get to. And so those small individual changes add up to large collective change. And that's the same with mindsets, it's the same with viewpoints, it's the same with anything. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dinan's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mahi parahanui, kia koutou kotawaho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for us all, the last several years have been very tough and it's so important that we give ourselves and each other the care, the compassion, the kindness, the understanding, the time, the love that we all so richly deserve and need. 
as we move through this time of recovery and recalibration. And I know for myself, of course, the living world is always a great comfort and particularly where we are in Aotearoa, New Zealand, such a beautiful paradise. So many places we can go to reconnect with the natural world and our place within it, to hear the birds, to hear the water, to watch the sky, to breathe the fresh air. All of these beautiful elemental aspects are always there for us to remind us of that very ancient and very powerful part of ourselves that can find a homecoming whenever we need. We also, of course, have a place within us that is always untouched by the hustle and bustle, the comings and goings, the changes of the world around us. And the sanctuary within is also always available to us if we can find the opportunity to calm and quiet our minds and focus within on that peace and tranquility there. I speak to you now as I am transforming my womanship. I've been releasing a lot of treasure back to the universe, which has been very satisfying, and creating intoxicating space. This is quite a new activity for me, having enjoyed adornment very heavily over the last 10 years or so. The womanship is absolutely bursting with treasure. So to create space and to create a sense of possibility and freedom has been a wonderful release for me. So I really hope for you, whatever's happening around you, wherever you are, you're finding ways to make space for yourself and for your creative energy to flow. That you're finding ways to declutter different aspects of your life, mentally, physically, emotionally, letting go of what you no longer need and making way for the new. And of course, when we make way for the new, such an exciting time, there really are limitless possibilities of what can come our way. We also regain a real sense of autonomy and stewardship of our life and our life experience. I've been really enjoying just having that ability to really see what's underneath all of these beautiful objects that have been there for a long time and seeing the walls, seeing the floor, seeing the parts of the house that need fixing that have had beautiful objects in front of them and of course this is something that we can all do on so many different levels finding those aspects that we need to give care and attention to that maybe we have had to mask or continue to persevere through I hope now we can all have the time and the energy and the space that we need to attend to those parts of our lives that need our attention and care. And of course, being part of the show is a huge pleasure and privilege. I'm so grateful. It's wonderful to hear the stories of people all over the world who are venturing forth in new ways and really consolidating the experiences of their lives in such inspirational and creative ways. So I really hope for you that today brings many more opportunities to shine, many more opportunities to appreciate, many more opportunities to connect, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite.
married me, didn't you? Risky. Cause I always come back. Deep down, you know that. Deep down, you know my mum is in periphery. Rent on your please to see me. It's been weeks since we spoke, bro. I know you need me. You're the sheep, I'm the shepherd. Not your place to lead me. Not your place to be biting off the hand that feeds me. Hi, Bren. I've been taking some time to be distant. I've been taking some time to be still. I've been taking some time to be by myself since my therapist told me I'm ill. And I've been making some progress lately. And I've learned some new coping skills So I haven't really needed you much, man I think we need to just step back and chill Ren, you sound more insane than I do You think that those doctors are really there to guide you? Been through this a million times Your civilian mind is so perfect to always be lied to Okay, take another pill, boy Drown yourself in the sound of white noise Follow this ten-step program, rejoice All your problems will be gone Fucking dumb, boy Nah, mate this time is different man, trust me I feel like things might be falling in place And my music's been kinda doing bits too Like I actually might do something great And when I'm gone, maybe I'll be remembered For doing something special with myself That's why I don't think that we should talk man Cause when you're with me, it never seems to help You think that you can amputate me? I am you, you are me, you are I, I am we We are one, split in two, that makes one So you see, you gotta kill you if you wanna kill me I'm not left over dinner, I'm not scraps on the side Oh your music is thriving, delusional guy Where's your top ten hit? Where's your interview with Oprah? Where are your Grammys, Ren? Nowhere Yeah, but my music's not commercial like that I never chase numbers, statistics or stats I never write hooks for the radio They never even play me So why would I concern myself with that? But my music is really connected And the people who find it respect it And for me that's enough Cause this life's been tough So it gives me a purpose I can rest in Man, you sound so pretentious Ran, your music is so self-centered No one wants to hear another song About how much you hate yourself Trust me you should be so lucky Having me inside you to guide you, remind you To manage expectations, provide you perspective That thing you neglected, I get it You wanna be a big deal, next Jimi Hendrix, forget it Man, it's not like that Man, it's just like that, I'm inside you, you twat No, it's not, man, you're wrong, when I write, I belong Let me break the fourth wall by acknowledging this song Ren sits down, has a stroke of genius He wants to write a song that was not done previous A battle with his subconscious, Eminem did it Played on guitar, Plan B did it Man, you're not original, you criminal rip-off artist The pinnacle of your success is stealing other people's so, once again, this goes back to this idea of voice. So, this guy, Ren, he's, he's really interesting. He was diagnosed with bipolar, um, and that's predominantly what this song is about. But the other area where I find it interesting is this is another way of a young musician is able to find his voice and communicate his experience of, of the human condition uh, in a way that, well, I can understand. Uh, what he's talking about with uh, being bipolar is incredibly complicated, uh, very personal and very nuanced, and he has been able to communicate that to me in a way which is really succinct, captivating and engaging. And for me, that's something I aspire to with my doctoral work. I was created at the dawn of creation. I am temptation. I am the snake in Eden. I am the reason for treason, beheading all kings. I am sin, with no rhyme or reason. Son of the morning, Lucifer, Antichrist, father of lies. Mistopheles, truth in the blender, deceitful pretender, the banished avenger, the righteous surrender. When standing in front of my solar eclipse, my name is stitched to your lips. So you see, I won't bow to the will of a mortal, feeble and normal. You wanna kill me? I'm eternal and mortal. I live in every decision that catalyzes chaos that causes division. I live inside death, the beginning of end. I am you, you are me, I am you, friend. Hi, 
I ran. I've been taking some time to be distant. I've been taking some time to be still. I've been taking some time to be by myself and I've spent half my life ill. But just as sure as the tide starts turning, just as sure as the night has dawned, just as sure as the rainfall soon runs dry when you stand in an eye of a storm. I was made to be tested and twisted. I was made to be broken and beat. I was made by his hand, it's all part of his plan that I stand on my own two feet. And you know me, my will is eternal. And you know me, you've met me before. Face to face with a beast, I will rise from the east and I'll settle on the ocean floor. And I go by many names also. Some people know me as hope. Some people know me as the voice that you hear when you loosen the noose on the rope. And you know how I know that I'll prosper? Cause I stand here beside you today. I have stood in the flames that cremated my brain and I didn't once flinch or shake. So coward the man I've become when I sing from the top of my lungs. That I won't retire, I'll stand in your fire, inspire that me to be strong. And when I am gone, I will rise in the music that I left behind. Ferocious, persistent, immortal like you, we're a different Listening to Blowing Bubbles. That was Ren with Hi Ren. Tim, tell us about your doctorate work. My doctoral work is um, <clears throat> a, 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 I'm at the start of the doctoral journey, so at the moment it's exhilarating, terrifying, uh, incredible. Um, I'm at that phase where I'm, I'm, I'm learning and I'm uh, being inquisitive and I'm finding information and, and new ways of looking things and it's a, and it's and it's fantastic and I, I absolutely love it. Um, however, I am also aware um, that there's a, a slowly moving, grinding thing which will be just work, uh, and with it will come like the. The, the, just basically the ability to work and put your nose to the grindstone. I, I feel fortunate in the fact that as a chef, I'm, I'm not too phased by doing hard work. Um, where it is at the moment is really just trying to establish my voice and find a way to communicate what I believe is something which has relevance to a very broad range of people. So what I'm looking into is carbon neutrality in restaurants particularly the hospitality sector. Um, the reason that I'm looking into that is that we are going to have to have a carbon neutral economy um, and we are going to have to revisit the notion of what value is and tourism is going to have to consider what value is and what exchanges. Um, it's pretty well established that we cannot continue with like exponential growth or exponential returns. Um, that's very much a thing of the 80s, 90s. What we need to start considering is what does linear growth look like? We, we need growth. We need growth to allow to, to pull people up. We can't have sectors of our society that are marginalised um, because we don't have growth. That's not fair. The, the trick is to have growth in such a way that those communities have been pulled up, not pushed down. So that's why I'm looking into 
um, carbon neutral hospitality in tourism sectors. I mean, New Zealand tourism at the past has been reliant on, we'll call it cattle class. Um, it's not realistic or sustainable to believe that we can maintain that. You just need to look at the small towns on the West Coast and the effect that that has had on them. Um, there's just simply not enough of an established community there to support the infrastructure required for these people to for these tourists to come through. What we need to do is we need to start that conversation with people, with tourists that come to our country, that this is our country, this is what is special about it, this is what you can't get anywhere else. And that is a genuine, unique, positive experience, which you can only get in these two small islands in the bottom of the South Pacific. And that is what people come to here for, which leads me into restaurants. The, one of the ideas of value in restaurant has been this idea of a quote-unquote better restaurant. And that usually means following a, a French style of cuisine or importing another style of cuisine. Where it gets really interesting is where we start establishing our own cuisine, our own way of doing things. And I'll give you an example of that is, is the Kaikoura barbecue. Um, you wash your own plates. You sit on a shared table. You eat the seafood from the environment that it came from and it's cooked on a barbecue. And it's one of the best experiences you can have. If I, the, 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 the sort of thing that I use for evaluating is if Tom Cruise came to wherever you are and you had to show Tom Cruise somewhere to eat, you know, he's arguably the, one of the most noticeable men in the world. There's an outfit called Mikey's Kai. Um, that would be where I would take him in Dunedin because there is simply nowhere else like Mikey's Kai. He's a big guy. He's generous with his food. He loves to talk. And the experience is fantastic. So my doctoral work is looking into, you know, how do we, A, how do we look at what's happening abroad um, surrounding carbon sequestration, surrounding um, how we, how they've started to manage this because they're a few years ahead of us. And how do we take those ideas and how do we bring them to New Zealand? How do I incorporate them into my teaching so that these young students that we're having uh, that are going out to the workforce have got the tools, they've got the ammunition, they've got a way to navigate this change. They've got a way to to go, you know, we can make this change. We, we can make people wash their own plates. We don't have to have disposable plates. I mean, statistics are like was it out of every 15 billion trees that are cut down, three billion of those trees are used for making part making cardboard boxes for shipping things. You know, we don't need to carry on with that. We can change things. We can we can make that. So that's really where my doctoral work's going to fall into is trying to find some of the questions of these. At the moment, I just have a lot of questions and not many answers, so that I can give my students the strength and the ability to navigate this change when they go into the workforce. Do we charge those students with the responsibility for driving change? Is, yes. that, where, is that how change happens? I believe it is where change happens. I, I believe we charge them with the responsibility to do that, but at the same time we have a handout to guide them. That is my, that is my, my belief on it. It's simply... If you're if if you're in the workforce, you're consumed with working and being productive and all the things that come with being in the workforce. So it's not realistic to expect someone who is in the workforce to constantly be researching new ways, forms of of operating. That's the responsibility of uh, dare I say like the word academics, teachers, parents, um, 
Kaimatua, that's where I see that responsibility to lie. It's to lay the to lay the map down, to lay to, to pave the road for the for the students to go down. But if we don't pave the road and we don't question and are inquisitive about the way we approach things, well we can't expect them to be questioning and inquisitive about what they're doing and how they're approaching and how they're operating and what what they're doing. But can we can we actually create this critical approach to their professional practice that just makes them driven to always be part of the change, to drive the change, to expect the change, to demand the change? To Can we create a, a generation of activists? I so dearly hope so. <laughs> I so, so dearly hope so. And one of the things about education is I think you just, you fundamentally have to be an optimist to work in it. Um, and there's there's no there's no way around that. And I think also the, what we, one of the things we need to be careful of is that we're not always looking for radical change. You know, small incremental change is, is, is fine. Um, you know, one of the things that I've seen when I was a chef was going from, you know, a steak was 250 grams. So that's a quarter of a kilo of meat. That's a lot of meat. There's just no way a restaurant will do that now. We're looking at 120 grams. So that's a small incremental change, which is going to have a massive effect, a huge effect on things. Um, you know, we've got restaurants in the UK like Silo, which is zero waste. So I'm able to take those ideas that this, this restaurant is doing about having absolutely no waste, none whatsoever, and I'm able to incorporate that with my students. So the first project we're going to do is a zero waste project. So we're going to look at, you know, what what is the downstream effect of our actions here? So I, I don't know how that will manifest itself with these students in the workforce. All I know is that once that seed is planted and, and that they start evaluating things more critically, that that will come out in some other way. That's my hope, at least. I like that hope. Tim, who are your favourite suppliers? Um, well, I, um, I'm really, really fortunate that I work with some astonishing producers in New Zealand. Um, and, and we could talk about this literally for hours, but I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of a greatest hits, if you will. And, I, and I'll start with Nate from Gravity Fishing. Um, and if you get a chance, I'd really strongly recommend you have a chat to this, this man. He lives down in Stewart Island. He's a remarkable individual and he's a remarkable change agent. He was a commercial fisherman. Uh, he was um, on the usual quota management system, so he was getting paid by tonnage of, of what he was catching off Stewart Island. Uh, and he literally looked around one day and went, you know what, there's got to be a better way to do this. I'm, I'm targeting one species, I'm ignoring all the other species. Um, I'm pulling out literally hundreds of tonnes of this fish each year. This can't be right. There must be another way to do it. So, so he turned his back on what was a very lucrative gravy chain, and he was sort of working his way up the ladder, as you will. You know, he was a skipper. He was about to be given crayfish quota, which is, you know, that's that's a very lucrative thing to be given. And he set up his own his own business called Gravity Fishing, and he turned the model on his head, and he said, you know what, I'm actually just, I'm going to catch to order. I'm going to wait. When people ring me up, I'm going to go and catch that fish, and then I'm going to deliver it. And I'm going to ikijimi the fish, and it's going to be the best fish anyone has ever had. And so in the space of that season, he went from catching hundreds of tonnes of one species to catching, I think it was 350 kilos of fish spread across all of the different species. The biggest biggest challenge that he had was then going around and teaching chefs in my industry that there's seasonality within the seafood world. 
that your blue cold is best at certain times of the year. Kingfish is good at certain times of the year. If you want the best of the fish, you need to listen to me as a supplier because I'm the guy that goes out and gets it. I'm the one that's on the water. I see this. I'm in touch with it. You need to trust how I operate that. So he's a, a first example of, of a change agent uh, and making a massive difference. So he has now he's now establishing a model where what he is trying to do is he's trying to break down the regulations surrounding the harvesting of fish. So that I, where I live in Harwood, out in the peninsula, say that I can get a literally a shipping container dropped off to me, which is registered by MPI. Um, I can go out on my boat and I can catch some fish and I am able to supply them to, say, the local pub. But that's it. That's all I've got. So I can catch five fish and I can supply them. So he's trying to break away from um, the model where fish harvesting is done by major players, and it's almost a democratisation of it, where it's been given out and distributed more evenly. So, yeah, Nate's an incredibly inspiring person to talk to just through his observations surrounding seafood and seafood harvesting. Um, on the flip side of that, we have an outfit called Providence Meat, and they are a large central Otago farm in Ranfurly. Um, David Cruxley, who owns it, was literally walking around his farm one day and said, if I continue putting the agrochems that I am at the moment, I'm not going to be able to pass this on to my family. Um, the farm will die. So he went to a completely regenerative approach to farming. He looked at the role that grazing animals have on the tussock areas. He stopped using any of his agrochemicals and uh, he completely changed the way he started farming. Now, you can look down the fence line, and this is in central Otago, you can look down the fence line. On one side, his farm is green. On the other side, it's brown. Uh, the locals ridiculed him, said, you're crazy. What are you, what are you doing? You know, there's a way to farm. This is not how you farm in this area. And he continued with that. Then his expansion model, and this is what we were talking about earlier on, moving away from this, this kind of um, exponential growth, into like one which is linear, he said, my expansion model is to get other farmers operating the way I do. That's how I'm going to expand this model. So he's now got about three other farms, large farms, which have now locked on to this regenerative way of farming. So not only is there carbon sequestration, which is occurring in it, um, it's, a, it's an astonishingly high quality product incredibly well looked after. The husbandry of the animals is remarkable. And suddenly, post-COVID, he's got people from all around the world bringing him up wanting his product. He's now in the position, he's taking it the next step, and he's getting phone calls from, say, Tesco, so saying, we want however many hundred thousand kilos or tonnes of lamb rump. And he's now saying, I'm not going to supply you just lamb rump. You have to start taking whole animals as well because it's it's not sustainable, it's not realistic, and it's, it's not realistic for me to just supply solely rumps to one outfit. We need to start looking at the whole animal. And it becomes really interesting when I talk to my students about this, and one of my Nepalese students said, well, in Nepal, there is no different prices. You know, there is no favoritism. The rump is not a premium product. The whole animal is a premium product. And so here's another change agent, and he's really making significant change in the way people approach things. Um, so that's two. <laughs> I could go on today. <laughs> we might have to get you back to talk about some more because that that's really, really interesting. We have some questions to end the show, which we've asked before, and we don't have any time, so we're just going to ask one of them. Let's go for... What's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next My year doctor. or so? <laughs> <My doctorate. laughs> 
my doctorate. Yeah, my doctorate. <laughs> and lastly, then, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh, uh, there's a wonderful quote from this guy Anthony Bourdain, and he 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 talks about he talks about go to go to the pub at three, have a beer, have two, have the have the cream sauce with the steak, talk to a stranger. And it's just, it's a beautiful quote because it's just a wonderful way to kind of view life. And so that's my advice to listeners. Thank you for that. uh, Anthony was incredible, an incredible human being and his love of food and his food approach. Oh gosh, the world lost an incredible person when we lost him. Tim, thank you for your goodness and for being an agent for change, uh, for inspiring this next generation of activists who will actually reap the rewards of all the all the work that you and others who are on this journey are doing. We appreciate you and keep up the good work. Kia ora. Thank you, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Wednesday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie, and this is Brothers Moving. Keep on talking to yourself. I'm Samuel Hansen-Sorys-Bazin with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and we've been joined by Tim Lynch at Otago Polytechnic Tupunkhanga. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. Marty Wild.
talking to yourself. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.